Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. There is a certain myth about it, right? Because there's nothing to compare it to in present time, right? And so it's it's hard for people to, in modern times, tell a story that doesn't come with pictures or with video. It's almost like, you know, if you don't have a picture or you don't have a video of it, it didn't happen. If a girl twerks in the woods and no one's there to see it, does her booty even clap? That's Bun B, one half of the legendary rap duo UGK, and one of my favorite rappers of all time. I'm Chris Frierson, documentary filmmaker based in New York City by the way of the greatest state in America shaped like a human hand, Michigan. As a Yankee black kid growing up in the suburbs of said state, I weirdly have always had a fascination with the South. I mean, mainly because of the Great Migration and slavery and stuff. As an adult, I've had a lot of time to think about what the South means to the country. But in my formative years, nothing below the Mason-Dixon was more interesting to me than the annual spring break celebration commonly known as Freaknik. So I happened to be in Los Angeles a couple months ago for this Grammy thing where I was nominated for a Grammy thing. Spoiler alert, I lost. And a colleague of mine hit me up and was like, yo, you should talk to Too Short. He's out there. And he was part and parcel to the Freaknik story. So we met up with him in his massive studio space in the middle of nowhere in the City of Angels. I remember Freaknik seeing this white lady in traffic. At, at times, you would get stuck in traffic, and it would be like, whatever's going on up there, they're not moving. Like, you're going to sit here for 45 minutes without moving one inch. You're not moving. And I remember that lady talking on the cell phone in her car, and she had the most fearful look on her face. Like, it was like if you threw her in the lion's, like like on a safari or something, and she's no longer in the vehicle. And she's like, I'm in the fucking middle of the safari, safari in the goddamn jungle with no nothing. That's what she looked like. And I, I felt her, too. I'm like... I get it. She made a wrong turn and ended up in Freaknik. You get it. Like, I get it. That could could be terrifying to somebody. Welcome to Freaknik, a discourse on a paradise lost. In the mid-90s, you were sort of conditioned to think about East versus West Coast when it came to rap and hip-hop music. But in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, all of a sudden music started coming from the South that sounded like nothing else you'd ever heard before in your life. One of its originators was Rico Wade from the production trio Organized Noise. You guys are doing a piece on, on Freaknik, right? So yeah, it's about it's, it's about Freaknik, but it's also like about Atlanta. Well, I love to talk about Atlanta. Yeah. <laughs> So that's why I'm happy that you're here. I'm happy no but also my my partners, like Ray, for a fact, he's he's up the street at Stank on you, but he was was in the middle of recording something. He then sleepy. I'm not sure. My phone had died. I would love for both of them to be here, but but I no, I think you, no matter what, I think we can hold it down. Yeah, absolutely. 
What's good? What you been up to? Um, honestly, just getting over the um, you know, we've been having these back to back weekends. If it's Grammys, Super Bowl, yeah. All Star Weekend, yeah. it's just been so. I've been, you know, been enjoying it, <laughs> enjoying every weekend quietly. Quiet. You didn't know. You didn't realize. I didn't realize until like, we we were scheduling the shit, and I was like, oh shit. Well, it's like something happening the whole time right. from the very beginning of very beginning of February. It started happening Super Bowl to yeah. All Star to like some some kind of TV award show. Grammy. Yeah, yeah. Then the, um the Oscars, Oscars come up yeah. on the twenty fourth. Right. Low key, turned up. <laughs> Freaknik, Freaknik. Okay, the reason why we're here. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna give you the good game. Freaknik started before '94 or before '93. It was like something that was happening in the in the parks, like but it was like a weed day, like 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 oh everybody come out to the park. We gonna they gonna let us smoke weed legal. I'm like boy, this is a police roundup. Anybody go to Washington Park? Anybody go to whatever park they name? They gonna be locking y'all Negroes up at the end. But they didn't. I think the biggest thing about Freak Nick that tripped me out was that they were letting black people do this, right? Like, there were police all over the place, and they were just letting black people have their way with the city of Atlanta for that weekend. And that was probably the biggest thing that blew my mind about the entire thing of Freak Nick, that it wasn't behind walls that it wasn't inside of a venue. This shit was literally happening through the streets of downtown Atlanta, and the police were letting black people have their way. What do you think that says about Atlanta, if anything at all? It, it started the whole mythology in modern times about Atlanta being the black capital of the South. You know what I'm saying? Because there were simply things that black people were doing in Atlanta that they weren't doing anywhere else. Bun's use of the word mythology in describing Atlanta is mad apropos. Not to talk shit, but working in the documentary field has allowed me to travel all over the country, all over the world. But with all the cities that I've worked in and shot in and interviewed people in, Atlanta has always stood out. It's always remained a mystery to me. I mean, it's a weird fucking place, and I never really could understand why. So I pitched his show in an effort to unpack what Freaknik meant as a cultural event, but at the same time, explore what Atlanta has meant for generations of African Americans in America. Right, 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 right. But, you know, you started this because you were trying to flirt with my homegirl. And she's from Atlanta, I'm from Atlanta. You were just trying to talk about something that she could relate to. This did not have to do with your, uh, your passions and your scholarly interests. That's Caroline, my Caucasian Atlantan friend who I often kick it with in this bar called Golden Years in Brooklyn. She's calling me out on my bullshit. In the parlance of the podcast world, she's kind of like the, the Nisha to my Adnan Syed, but more on that later. Hello, We're on our way over to you right now. All right. All right, so go to, go to uh, Uncle John's house? Yeah, yeah. All right. All right. We will uh we will reroute. It's right. It's like right down the street, right? Yeah, it's just one exit there. All right. Cool. Okay. Um, we are on our way, brother. Cool. Sounds good. Talk to you. Then. All right. See you soon. Peace. All right. Let's figure out the new address then. In case you were wondering who that sultry, mysterious female voice was, that's Savannah, my main dami my intrepid producer, the yin to my yang, the Ally McGraw to my Black Sea McQueen, and basically, the motherfucking shit. 
She's down here at Atlanta on this journey with me. So right now we're headed over to my cousin's house to see what's up. In 1,000 feet, you will arrive at your destination. In case you were wondering who that computer voice was, that's Siri. She's helping us get to our next location. Good. Hello, 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 hello. Hi. Come on this in. This is Savannah. This is Chris. This is Hannah. Hi. Chris, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Should we take our shoes off? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yo! There he is! There he is! What's going on, T? So we link up with my cousin Jason, my Uncle John, my Aunt Janice, and my other cousin Justin, who's just about to get married, by the way. Congrats, bro in Lithonia, about a 30-mile drive outside of Atlanta, the suburbs. Jason's my age, and when we were young, he would regale me stories about the insanity that was Freaknik, even though we were both like 12 years old at the time. How many did you go to? How many uh, times did I get out there? Yeah. From about, about 94, 95, 96, you know, I would catch the train. Yeah. yeah, I would catch the train from Indian Creek train station five points. It exposed you if you were young, he exposed you to a lot. Like, yeah. I believe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there were men out there, boys out there taking pictures of girls, girls having clothes on her. It was, it was unbelievable. It was packed <laughs> with kids. So I just didn't know. It was, it was awful. Did you guys ever worry about them going out there during the pregame? They didn't tell us. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you, what'd you say? What's your excuse? Why they didn't tell us? Well, I mean, we go to the mall. We going out to the mall, and we going out with mom and daddy. I mean, they never really tripped about me, especially me. Probably less than him. No, I tripped about you more than anybody. And they used to sell t-shirts and clothes and stuff yeah, out there yeah. Yeah. at Freaknik. Yeah, like that's yeah. when I was young going to Freaknik, yeah. I would be with Nate because he used to always be out there selling clothes. Everybody made some money mm-hmm. if it was available. There's always a hustle for someone. Right. And that was his hustle. End scene. Speaking of commercialization, here's a word from our sponsors. Y'all have any VHS stuff? Not yet. Not with us. Y'all have none yet? Nah. Oh, yeah, I got some. All right. You got some stuff. You still have I just talked to my partner. He said... All his partners, they still got some of the VHS tapes. Oh, really? So I I told him to get on top of that ASAP. All right, yeah. But I feel like my first, when I was a kid, my first introduction to the concept of, I feel like Nate showed me a tape. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, yeah. Mike, uh, Mike had some tapes. I mean, it might have been Mike, Mike showed me some tapes. A lot of people yeah. had VHS tapes. I mean, that's what people yeah. walk around with all the time with these VHS yeah. tapes. The days of the VHS. Much to my chagrin, we never copped those tapes. But we did manage to link up with one of the illest photographers I've ever met just like on a human level. This dude, Alex Tarani, who shot Freaknik for Vibe magazine back in 1994. I mean, my understanding of Freaknik, from what little I know, is that, you know, it started out as like this idea of a picnic in whatever that park was in downtown Atlanta. And, um... Piedmont. Piedmont. Piedmont Park. And it stayed... Uh, something very local for a little while and then somebody who's got friends or brother, sister, whoever they know people at Spellman, Howard different spots, oh you should this is fun, Yeah, you should come check this out at which point it started growing and by the time I got there I mean, 
I wouldn't say I got there late, but um, I didn't get there early either. I got there in sort of a nice little sweet spot where it maybe wasn't so local. It was definitely like people flying in, hotel rooms booked, rental car companies tapped out. And this was at a time where a lot of the other things I was shooting at that time, they were a great scene in and of themselves. But people weren't photographing them, really. You had to have a camera. Most people didn't have a camera, right? So I was usually the person coming in. I have these things that you can't believe everybody didn't have a picture, but nobody had a picture. I was the one guy kind of like doing an assignment for a magazine. Um, and you saw that start to show up. I mean, just this one picture of the girl on top of the car on the freeway, people gathering around and taking the shots. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. I, I thought of it as Freak Nick for me was a spectacle. I mean, it was a spectacle. And I've done a lot of sort of similar things in different subcultures, their version of their spectacle. And that one, this idea of like the black colleges having their spring break, it was how they did it in Atlanta. Much like many a suburban youth growing up in the 80s and 90s, my only semblance of even the idea of spring break before I could actually attend was seen on MTV television network. My spring break heroes were Bill Bellamy, Kennedy, Daisy Fuentes, and the god himself, John Sencio. John Sencio here, the top 20 video countdown at the Beach House with my good friend, new friend, international supermodel, Beverly Peel. We're so close now, huh? So we're out in Los Angeles. We pull up to John's crib stage an interview in his awesome bungalow in the back of his house. I'm literally shitting my pants right now. There was the MTV Beach House. That was a thing. Every summer they'd have a location and they'd fill from, you know, it's a business. You know, you'd have sponsors, this and that. And then spring break is, you know, it's, um, spring break is an American institution. It's a weird sociological, anthropological phenomenon that exists. And um, so I guess the powers that be said, you know, we, we have to, this is good for business. We have to be there. It's part of youth culture. I think it's, I think spring break is a national pastime for exactly the reasons that we're talking about Freaknik becoming the kind of cultural phenomenon that it was. It was an opportunity to cut loose, leave your day-to-day -day routine behind be, you know, act out whatever person you wanted to be amongst a whole big old community of people that wanted to do that too. And um, I've seen that with, yeah, I don't, actually, it's funny. I don't really think of that as a race. I don't think of, because I've done these stories where I went to Cabo San Lucas and did a story for MTV. And that was predominantly a white crowd and Arizona, Arizona State, like those kind of kids. And then Freak Nick, obviously, predominantly a black crowd. I don't really think of it that way. They, they share that thing in common. The way they're maybe reported in the media is twisted around a little bit according to kind of racial bias. But um, I think they're really an opportunity for kids who are trying to mostly get it right, go to school, get good grades, think about their future. Right. To just have a week where they're like, fuck all that. I'm just going to like, I'm going to do that thing. I, it's, my, it's my youth. 
I'm going to take advantage of my youth. I want to do things and do them too much and go too far and be stupid and be silly and nobody cares because I'm doing it with a lot of people that feel the same way. What's the old axiom from the 70s? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You, you, you know, and I mean, you're expecting... What, uh, you know, wet T-shirt contests and bikini contests and um, people drinking too much and then, oh, some idiots getting a fight outside a bar and things like that. And uh, So that's maybe that would be the darker side of it or the negative side. But, um, you know, I was very lucky because I'm there for MTV. So it's like there's Bill Bellamy. There's Daisy Fuentes, there's Kennedy, there's myself, and everyone knows who you are, and you're hanging out with these celebrities. So that is the wild, like someone says, what's the, the like my friends from home, they call me Sense. They're like, Sense, this is insane. You're hanging out with, you know, Snoop Dogg, or, you know, you're with Mike Myers promoting the next Austin Powers film, you know, or like- On a beach, surrounded by everything that's also- awesome that young people think is awesome that's a hundred percent right that's it so for me it's like asking an astronaut well so what was cool about being in nasa well you i went to the moon i mean isn't that self-evident i went to the freaking moon man so as a kid um you know you're in your 20s you graduate college and suddenly um you're at spring break you, you know and you're hanging out like i I always enjoy the weird little, like, yeah, it's late at night, you're going back to your hotel room, there's like three naked people running down the hallway. The first time you see that, you're like, wow, that's shocking or wild. The sixth time you see it, you're like, oh, I guess it's it's spring break. I, I got to go to bed because we're filming in the morning, you know? So it's funny, it's crazy, it's like something out of, like you talked about those Frankie Avalon Gidget movies. Okay, imagine if Quentin Tarantino were directing a, a Gidget movie, you know, so it's that weird evolution. But for me, like, I remember like, okay, you're gonna interview Marlon Wayans. And like the little conversations, the funny anecdotes before and after that type of interview, or Tom Arnold, or the Spice Girls, or Foxy Brown, or Blackstreet, or Aerosmith, you know, these were like, you know, one after the other. Dude, that's a crazy thing, man. I mean, how many VJs are there in a nation of 300 million people? There were five. So it, it was awesome, you know. Speaking of, you mentioned some musical artists. Was How prevalent or how important was music to Spring Break just in general back then? Oh, it was central. So I want to call attention to what I think is the greatest quote of this podcast. I mean, this is episode one, but to me it's like one of the greatest quotes of all time. When Sensio says, out of 300 million people, how many VJs were there? Five. That quote isn't just cool because it makes him seem cool and it sounds dope, but it speaks to like what spring break was and the way it was represented to the rest of the country. Sitting at home after school in my parents' living room, I would just watch the beach house, watch Red Hot Chili Peppers perform and 311 perform in front of thousands of adoring Caucasian fans. But at the same time, like little did I know that 300 miles away, there was a whole new genre of music that was sort of incubating. One of the progenitors of that music 
was Big Yip from Goody Mob. By the time we got to downtown and started filming, that's when we realized that this Freaknik was going to be the Freaknik that changed Atlanta. By the time we got downtown about 5 or 6 o'clock, it was 250,000 people in this city. And the city was shut down. The police went home, everybody was just people everywhere. Police couldn't do nothing. They wasn't even, they was like, yo. And it was all cause it was the music. It was motherfuckers listening to players ball and listening to the album like over and over and wanting to come to Atlanta and experience this shit. And when we came outside, all the Peach Street was shut down all the way to Buckhead. And it was just the dopest shit that we shot the video, we got home and that night, that's when we found out there was over like 300,000 people in the city. And we all knew it was because of our music. Cars wouldn't move, so you just stuck in traffic throughout the whole period of time. See, at my age, the whole thing, as far as, you know, because I'm a little bit younger, we would catch the martyr and go to little Five Point. Um, I would go to, you know, Five Points itself, or we either go to the malls. Right. You know, Lennox would be just crazy. Ooh. South DeKalb would be crazy, Greenbrier Mall. Why do you say, why do you make that face? That's horrible. Do not go to the mall. What, what y'all doing tomorrow? I'm slightly nervous because tomorrow I have to, like, do like a lecture at, uh, was it Georgia State? Georgia State. Georgia State. Yeah. Right. My alma mater. Yeah, it's like, so I have to, we have this like weird negotiation. So man, I don't even know how that happened. <laughs> to interview this woman who, uh, she put you, she said, well, as long as you come and do the lecture. Yeah, yeah essentially. Yeah. Really? So I got to speak in front of a bunch of kids in the morning. Are they grass? <laughs> students? How you know they grass students, man? Yeah, it's a film. It probably is. Yeah, it's a media studies. Yeah. Or so it's grad? Yeah. I think, I want to say this. Cause it's I'd rather they be younger. Yeah. yeah. Just throw anything out there. Yeah, exactly. And they'll accept it. I'd much rather they be younger. I'm or they'd be very arrogant and say, who in the hell do you think you are? Uh, Anybody else y'all meet with today? Did, uh, you go, did you go by and see Magic? No, nah, we didn't go by. I haven't gone by yet. All right, so if, Magic City? Yeah. I thought, it, so when you go by, and he asks, like, who told you to come, just tell him uh, D Money. D Money? Yeah. All right. Yeah. I should go probably, like, during the day or some shit? Probably. Uh, if y'all want to go on the way home. <laughs> it, is, it is Magic Monday, so yeah. you know, this, 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 this yeah. is that night. I was thinking we about, thinking it. about it. We were thinking about it tonight, yeah. and we were like, it's not, it's, it's like the busiest night, right? Hey, it was. One it's busy all the time. Not that I would know. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I would not know. But, <laughs> I'm still trying to go. <laughs> you know where Ben Jazz? She not going, okay? <laughs> but that is part of the culture, you know, of yeah. course. Mm -hmm. yeah. Magic City, one of the most popular adult entertainment venues in Atlanta. And Atlanta, I mean, Atlanta's a magical place, I don't, no pun intended. It's magical, yeah. yes. That's why it's called Magic City. <laughs> That's Katrina Fuqua, brand manager of Magic City, and an all-around super boss lady. She totally holds it down over there. That's one thing about Atlanta history is that most of our the, the history that is in Atlanta is built on the civil rights movement. So that's a huge part of the history. 
which makes it a that's why I love living here because of the fact that you you're living in a city who's was affected by that directly like they built what is now what Atlanta is and it's very important another thing that is a direct to me which is a direct correlation with the civil rights movement is a lot of black owned businesses there's a lot in Atlanta there are a whole lot in Atlanta this is one of them we're sitting on we're sitting on one and that's kind of like the thing it's like where else on God's green earth can you sit in a strip club on a Wednesday afternoon and speak to said strip club's manager about how the foundations of said strip club lie within the civil rights movement Atlanta, uh, with respect to higher education, is sort of like the uh, is a hub because you had so many schools here. You had initially Atlanta University, you had Clark College, and you had, of course, uh, the, the first one would have been Morehouse that was organized for um, men, uh, uh, boys at that point in time, and Spelman for girls. That's Michael Harvey journalist, novelist, and former lawyer. In fact, he's a self-proclaimed Freaknik lawyer. And before we got into the cool shit he did during Freaknik, he sat me down and explained some of the foundational elements of Atlanta through his eyes. But for Atlanta to have, to have those great educational institutions here, um, families from throughout Georgia, from throughout the country, would send their children to one of those schools. And um, when you got here, you were immersed in a um, campus life that totally black. Uh, you didn't have to uh, deal with the issues of uh, segregation and Jim Crow uh, that you would have had to dealt with uh, back in your home uh, town. So those students, uh, as they graduated, began to stay. And that helped um, Atlanta to, I believe, to develop uh, into the, the economic and educational intellectual powerhouse uh, and political powerhouse that it is uh, in the world today. I mean, I think that sort of sums up something that I've been talking to a lot of people about. It's like when you look at a lot of predominantly black cities in the post-civil rights era, Atlanta has managed to do, I don't want to quantify it, like one thing's better than the other, a lot more in terms of black leadership, black civic leadership, black business um, than a lot of these other cities. I mean, I, I grew up, in, like I said, in and around Detroit. And when you put those things side by side, it's worlds apart. Do you think that the Morehouse, the Spelbins, the Clarks played a huge part in that? You know, I, I think so. I think it, it was that educational hub over in the uh, Atlanta University Center um, that contributes to Atlanta being on more of a solid foundation than some of the other black majority populations throughout the country. I think it's the fact that we had those educational institutions here. Growing up with parents from Detroit and also just being a general weirdo, I've always had a strong interest in the idea of black political leadership. Mayors from Coleman Young in Detroit, Harold Washington in Chicago, Dave Dinkins in New York City, Bradley out in Los Angeles. I mean, there's a plethora. But one mayor always stood out to me, and that's Atlanta's Maynard Jackson. This is Atlanta, Georgia, 
the gateway to the South, a city that for years has stood for culture and progress. A few months ago, its citizens elected a man they thought could best do the job as mayor of Atlanta. His name is Maynard Jackson, and he's the city's first black mayor. Well, you know, from 1977, when you had Mayor Jackson come in and there was a source of black power and black political growth here, and you had, when Maynard, when Maynard came in, he actually created the first quote-unquote affirmative action program where he's mandated that 30% of every city contract, every city procurement, had, had to go to minority businesses. Mm. And so he created a legislative path for you know economic growth in the black community and for small black businesses. And so I think that and the growth of African-American millionaires and successful businesses at that time was probably the greatest in the uh, nation. That's George Hawthorne, a super successful business dude in Atlanta, who Real Talk is a living manifestation of Maynard's vision. In 1992, I was a lawyer in a law firm, and uh, in 1992 or 93, my uh, Maynard Jackson, who was at the mayor at the time, decided he was not going to run for mayor during the time of the Olympics, 94. The mayor most closely associated with Freaknik was Bill Campbell, who presided during its heights and its ultimate demise. We couldn't get him for this podcast, but we got the next best thing. His chief of staff, Steve Labovitz. How, how is, how's Mayor Campbell doing these days? He's doing great. I had dinner with him last night. Oh, really? Yeah. He told me not to do this, by the way. Oh, really? <laughs> he had had enough. Atlanta had changed a lot in the years since he had done it in the 70s. It was a different city he wanted out. He came to my law partner, was a guy named Bill Campbell, and Bill Campbell, um, uh, Maynard asked Bill Campbell to run for mayor. Uh, Bill Campbell and I were close friends. We were law partners. And Bill asked me to help him with the campaign. I became his, basically his head of his financial group, mm. financial team. He won the Olympics. I mean, won the election, which was a surprise. Right. He was not the favorite, but... Maynard endorsed him, and I became the chief of staff of the city. So I was chief of staff from 94 to 97. And, and how did he pick uh, Bill? Bill was a council member, a very bright council member, had gone to Duke Law School, Vanderbilt undergraduate, an attorney, very sharp. And I think Maynard had a good relationship with him. They worked together on council. And he saw, obviously, uh, some promise in Bill. And he decided Bill was his guy. And right. for whatever reason, that was the, uh, he was a little-known councilman at the time. But he, uh, but he ultimately won. We won the election. At its height, Campbell formed the Spring Break Planning Committee recruiting his man, George Hawthorne, to lead the charge on managing a party that many Atlanta residents had thought had gotten out of control. It started out as a picnic. I mean, just a picnic, and it grew to a national and global event. I mean, it's, it, it really, I, I think it shocked us. But we had to have, you know, some control and look at how do, we, how do we get your hands around this? Because if we can't handle African-American students and uh 
cars and major influx of uh, people, how are we going to handle the Olympics in 1996? The International Olympic Committee has awarded the 1996 Olympic Games to the city of Atlanta. When, do you, when did it like blow up, blow up? Just before the Olympics. A couple of years before, about 94. I don't know, I would say probably about 91, 92. You think so? Yeah. yeah. Um, I would say that only because just it was I'm that. Now, 94 might have been that last year. Uh, or 90, like, from my like understanding, like 94 is like when they were like, we gotta figure this shit out yeah. because we're about to have the Olympics. Yeah. It would have been 92 because I thought it was 96 when we did all the Nike. The looting happened. Well, 96 <laughs> was the Olympics. So was that the looting? Like 96, 97? When the looting happened, yeah. 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 So that's when they tried to stop it, of course. Right. You know, and that was when they tried to police it a little differently. Uh, and well, I was fine, it was on campus and around that area. Yeah. But, but when, they, they, when they went, they spread out. They just really spread out. Went to Bucket. That was a problem. Yeah, that was the problem. We went all the way <laughs> down to Bucket. For the uninitiated, can you explain what Buckhead is? Oh, the Buckhead community, that's the rich white folks. High end. The governor's mansion in Stewart is in, in the Buckhead community. And so when it started getting closer to there? When it got closer and closer to that, they had to put a stop to it. People weren't making any money. Yeah. According to them, they weren't making yeah, any money. Yeah, because they weren't going into those shops and spending any money. Those young kids were just riding up and down to stupid music and dancing and having a good Jumping time. Jumping on top of cars. Wanting to dig into Freaknik on a quote-unquote scholarly level, one of the first things we found in our research was this crazy paper by this dude, Peter Stockis, titled Rethinking African-American Protest, Freaknik and the Civil Rights Legacy of Atlanta. Look it up. It's free. It's awesome. And it's free. Outside of my praises for the work, the most interesting thing to me was, like, what made this white kid do his whole thesis paper about Freaknik? How did he convince his advisor? So we tracked him down. He lives in Nashville. And we had a conversation with him in his office about the process of the paper. And what was what was your like initial jump off? Like, what did you think you were trying to do uh, when you started the process, and how did that evolve? Because everything evolves. Yeah, I mean, when I first started the process, I think I was just sitting there and asking, you know. I was kind of looking at this, and I was like, well, why did it really get canned in the first place? Like, why did the city? Like, why Atlanta, this, you know, historically black city, the black Mecca in America, why are they, you know, turning their back on essentially like the best and the brightest of the generation? This is a question, a valid question. And the more we dug into things, the more we explored the concept of Freaknik and the concept of Atlanta and what they respectively mean, the questions kept piling up. Over the course of this series, Freaknik, a discourse on a paradise lost, we're going to attempt to answer some of these questions. We'll be all over the place. But I decided that we should probably start at the beginning. And, you know, at the, at the jump, when we started doing research, I read Pete's work, and his paper is great, like, about freaking out. It's, it's, it's almost a little bit like the thesis of what we're doing. Yeah. And so stumbling upon that was... 
a cool thing. And then, of course, he put us in touch and, yeah, and, and cool. so on and so forth. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you guys found me for kind of for one reason. It's not so I could be on the podcast. But it's because so many times in the last decade, anyway, people start talking about Freaknik in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I've heard more than once where folks are on the radio or someplace and they're saying, well, you know, I started Freaknik and blah, blah. And I'm like, look, Freaknik started in the early 80s. Freaknik is not what it became. Atlanta. Next time on Freaknik, a discourse on the Paradise Lost. I'm delighted to have Chris here. They're going to spend some time talking to you later on and asking you all some questions. Hence the microphones. I just wanted to know what was your background like? You started to hear rumors again about people wanting to bring a version of Freaknik back or to bring Freaknik back in general. Do you see that kind of as a thing happening? So Rico said we should have a picnic. And then it was, you know, what do we call it? We've been, we've been branding everything we've done up to this point. And Rico Brown came up with, let's call it Freaknik. Well, I have the pleasure, honor, and distinction of having been at the original Freaknik in 1985. Freaknik, a discourse on the paradise lost, is a production of Mass Appeal and Endeavor Audio. Created, produced, and narrated by myself, Christopher Frierson. Executive produced by Chris Colbert of DCP Entertainment. Produced by the one and only Savannah Jeffries, Mark Grandy, and Matt Graylin of Mass Appeal. Edited by Cher Vincent and Keith Memminger. Executive produced by Dave Easton and produced by Hannah Cope of Endeavor Audio. Technically produced by Nick Pacciano. Assistant edited by Jefferson Espitia and Louis San Giorgio. Associate producers Jackie Garofano, Brandon Tago, Adele Coleman, and John Klonowski of DCP Entertainment. Archival production by Jillian Bergman. We were mixed by Sue Pellino. Music supervision by Caroline Mislove. And our finishing producer was Stephanie Pacciano. Thank you, Steph. And last but not least, talent booking and all-around support, the Honorable Roberta McGreeny. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.